find out how you can help. and CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a dangerous plan to capture a shadow killer alive. Contract a hit on himself. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers, is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon.
Bajo gachupines, con todo el trailer, bajo a Jesucristo y al Richard Nixon, bajo la viruela, y hasta la ciplis, llora en vez de náhuatl, habla español, también trajo un vato llamado Cortés, que con la malinche metieron las tres, y de la conquista y la destrucción nacieron mestizos, hijos del soltero este sol años colonizaron y al niño noble aniquilaron y la independencia no dio las tierras pero los controles venían de afuera sudamericano tú lo sabes bien tú sufres las hambres y otros comen bien fuera el monopolio y su religión fueran las alianzas con el opreso porque este The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. 
communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Participation. Mass participation. 
good morning to you. Happy Saturday. <clears throat> I hope it is. This is the Labor and Love Show, and uh, we're coming to you from 2781 21st Street, which is our brick and mortar station over the world wide web, every part of the earth. Hope you're all out there listening. Started our our show today with some Willie Nelson, some Nina Simone, and some Willie Nelson's Can't Make Peace. You can crush any country in a matter of weeks. It don't make sense if you can't make peace. So yeah, they're at it again. These people who love war, who buy and sell the gun, or who get in arguments, Working people settle them. Send workers to die by killing each other. It don't make sense if you can't make peace. And then we had something from Los Peludos. This is a, a sad note today. This Los Peludos was a band, uh, a Chicano band. This this was a, a cut from 1984 called Quinta so, Quinto Sol. And referring to a legend of the Aztec Nahuatl people who came through California and the Southwest thousands of years ago and eventually some of them moved on to the Valley of Mexico and founded the Aztec Nation. The idea is California will have a quinto sol, a fifth sun that will arise and signal a new day for So, the personal note is uh, the band was comprised of, among others, uh, Antonio Ramirez, Enrique Ramirez, El Gove, all well-known local, all well-known local musicians. Uh, today we're celebrating Antonio Ramirez who passed away. And uh, this band was instrumental, no pun intended, in the development of a Chicano voice, Chicano music. Later bands like Los Lobos, El Chicano, many others uh, took inspiration from Los Peludos. And third, we had 
Nina Simone, Mississippi, goddamn. Hopefully you're not getting tired of hearing me play that. What I am struck by every time I play it is the raw emotion. Nina Simone was not hitting. She hated maybe not those white people who's sitting there laughing at her jokes and loving her music, but the structure like black people in this country and and other people who are treated in the same way keep saying, look, this is what's happening to me every day. How can you go on and do all these other things and have all these commercials and do all this business? And the big machine goes on when this is happening to me. My people are getting, well, gunned down, right? In Buffalo, New York, and many other places. I read a headline that uh, black people are getting nervous because of these racial shootings. <laughs> Why are they getting nervous? How could they get nervous? This is just the best of all possible worlds. Well, no, it ain't. And Nina Simone sang directly to that with her anger. Um, okay, so that, that was our leader. This is Labor and Love Radio. <clears throat> and just by way of introduction, Labor and Love Radio is where we tell you how it is. Quote Bill Haywood, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else gets a dollar worked for a dollar they didn't get. And we'll have some more on that as we're celebrating the birthday of none other than Karl Marx. We'll have a brief review of some of Marx's ideas and how that little saying of Bill Haywood reflects that. You don't have a seat, as a matter of fact, at the table, a negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu, and that's exactly what our comrades at Starbucks and Amazon and many, many other places are talking about, a seat at the table, a say in what happens to the wealth they produce. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. just a waste of time. Being a friend of labor is an indicator that that person cares about him or herself and their comrades, their other working people to build a mighty movement that will blow away all the capitalist exploitation. Blah, blah, blah. What do we got coming up today? As I mentioned, we got less, um, we've got radio. As I mentioned, we've got a celebration of the life and theories of Karl Marx. We've got radio labor. We've got AOL, uh, a piece in the economic 
economic report, why it's not just about why abortion and pro-choice is not just about fetus, mother. It's an economic reality as well for women who are forced to have babies, women who are forced to be mothers. An analysis of that from the Economic Institute. Economic Policy Labor notes organized farm workers win basic demands in Washington state. We'll go on our labor beat for Labor and Love Radio about minor league baseball players. And what's happening at Starbucks? We're talking about 200 places now. Places at Starbucks that have opted to go union. The organizer, Luisa Moreno, we're going to celebrate her today. If you haven't heard of Luisa Moreno, listen up. She had a very big role in organizing uh, many different trades, but best known for her work during the Zoot Suit quote-unquote riots and resisting the anti-communist, quote-unquote, wave in Southern California in the late 40s. An old favorite of this show, Francesca Fiorentini, Why Walls Won't Secure the U.S.-Mexican Border, and sort of a little short note from Cuba. Labor history in two minutes. Welcome, and you got it all coming at you. This is the B, and let's get to it. Backed up, of course, by Miles Davis.
the imminent loss of abortion rights means the loss of economic security, independence, and mobility for millions of women. Fall of Roe will be an additional economic blow as women in the 26 states likely to ban abortion already face the economic landscape of lower wages, worker power, and access to health care. Some of the economic consequences of being denied an abortion include a higher chance of being in poverty, even four years after, a lower likelihood of being employed full-time, and an increase in unpaid debts and financial distress lasting years. Laws that restrict abortion providers, so-called trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers, have led women in those states being less likely to move into higher-paying occupations. Let's just have a parenthetical input here, a little bit of parenthetical input. What, what this does on a, an existential level, let's say a day-to-day, everyday life level, is take away a woman's right over her body to plan her life. Women who might want to wait, start a career, or they have children, Women who feel that they don't have enough money or enough support to have a child at this time in their lives. Women who have decided not to have children at all. So this law, Mr. Alito's opinion, takes all those things out of a woman's It's, it's a lot more. The other part of it is that it's almost completely ignored in the whole argument is how it affects men. A man might not be ready, you know, to partner a couple might not be ready to partner and have a child together one work the other stay home or whatever the arrangement might be in other words it puts the government inside your house sitting there at the table with you making decisions for you forcing people to be parents forcing women to be mothers forcing men to be fathers when they may or may not be ready to do so. In any case, whose body is it? (laughs) Well, we know that during times of war, men lose power over their bodies, women as well. So, this takes freedom away. It's long been a precept of constitution law that you don't take away rights that have already been granted. Here is what that will do. And of course, 
Our failed health care system often imposes the ultimate cost on a pregnant woman. The U.S. rate of maternal morality, especially for black women, ranks last among similarly wealthy countries. In short, the potential costs of bearing a child are high indeed, and it is women who should decide if and when they wish to shoulder them. Please check this out. It's on the uh, Economic Policy Institute. Uh, and I would recommend, you know, if you want insight, a people's insight into economic questions and situations, ideas of programs coming and going, check it out. This one was written by Asha Banerjee. Working Economics Blog. Economic Policy Institute. Bubble in the Tulips. Let's go with Radio Labor. Now, Radio Labor is a compilation of labor campaigns and situations all over the world. Here we go with Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how unionist teachers are working to eliminate child labor. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. We want a life with dignity. A world that upholds rights and equality. Hatred and violence have no place. Regardless of gender, class, or this is Radio Labor. Allow me first to recall and reiterate the words of Nelson Mandela, who said education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And allow me to rephrase that to say education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to eliminate child labor. That is Dennis Signalo, the Africa Regional Director of Education International. EI's Global Union Federation, which represents 30 million teachers and other education workers in 172 countries. It has a special focus on helping the 160 million children in the world who are trapped in child labor. Mr. Signalo spoke at the 5th Global Conference of the Elimination of Child Labor, held May 15th to 20th in Durban, South Africa. If you are talking about education, certainly... The most important people who drive education are teachers, the women and men in our classrooms. Education International, being the Global Union Federation of Teachers, is working with its member organizations in various countries to eliminate child labor. I'll share with you five key strategies that are being used and give you examples related to these strategies. First, 
the unions and teachers collect evidence. So the first strategy really is research, collecting evidence about who is missing out on education, children that are in child labor, for example, and the reasons why, and where these children are, what are the sectors, the industries, and who is keeping them away from school. Education International has developed a tool which is called an equity audit tool. So that tool is used by teachers, actually, to identify children who are missing out on education, including those who are in child labor. We have several examples of our programs in 13 countries, actually, all over the world. For example, in Senegal, we've heard about Malawi. The unions are also working in Malawi on the ground, actually, to track these children and engage in advocacy with local authorities including traditional leaders, including school management committees, to actually bring these children who are missing out on education to school. So the second point really is advocacy and dialogue. And then the third point is awareness raising. This is very important because quite often parents may not be sending their children to school thinking that actually they're doing the best thing by allowing them to earn an income for themselves and for the family. But uh, teacher unions, as well as teachers at school or local level, engage with parents, engage with traditional leaders to get children into school, to raise awareness, consciousness, so that parents act and everybody else acts. And we've seen very successful examples, of course, in Malawi, in uh, Zimbabwe, in Mali, in Senegal, and in various other countries. The fourth strategy is community mobilization community mobilization. So yes, raising awareness is good, but it's not sufficient. So you need to mobilize. So unions mobilize their members. And then of course, the teachers mobilize the students, the communities to help in the effort of getting children out of labor and into school. Part of this is through actually using various methods. It can be theater, for example, It can be school clubs, anti-child labor clubs, for example. It can be committees involving all the key stakeholders within the community. And one of the most successful models EI has used is the creation of child labor-free zones. So the unions working together with communities have identified child labor-free zones. It can be a community. It can be a district if the ambition is higher, it can even be a region or province. And then they work together to make sure that these zones are free of any form of child labor. And then finally, uh, strategy number five is creating a safe and inclusive environment for the child, meaning the whole school and the whole classroom. For more information about Education International and child labor, visit ei-ie.org. When We look at the situation or what we are doing in Zimbabwe. We are using what we call the area-based approach, where we identify a small geographical area, do activities in there, commit off child labor. When we are done, we move to the next one. Angelina Lunga is the Training and Development Officer of the Zimbabwe Teachers Association, ZIMTA. We started our work in a place called Chipinge. Chipinge is a place where a lot of agricultural activities take place. 
It's important to mention that when government outlawed child labor, major companies abandoned child labor. However, our other smaller farmers, communal farmers, and even members of the community, some of them are still practicing it. It is important to mention that when child labor was abandoned, then these other pockets of activities are the ones that we are targeting. We realize that children were involved in heading cackle, not going to school, but heading cackle for some people, doing some farming activities somewhere, selling the whole day, and being closer to the Mozambican border. Our children sometimes cross the border to look for work or to order stuff and come and bring it into Zimbabwe and be sailing throughout the day. So we have been doing in the schools, first of all, we trained teachers on issues to do with child labor. This was because we wanted to raise awareness on the importance of education and the right to education for these learners. For the complete commentary about child labor by Ms. Lunga, visit radiolabor.net. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the astounding and unexpected union victory that has resulted in the introduction of paid domestic violence leave for Australian workers. We also carried news of new arrests of trade union leaders in Belarus, more efforts at solidarity with Ukrainian unions, and details of how and why the Trump administration in the United States conspired with food processing corporations to deliberately place meatpacking plant workers at risk. But my favorite top story of the week came to us from Sweden, where dockers have placed a hot cargo edict on Russian ships and on cargo bound to or coming from Russia as an act of solidarity with Ukrainian workers. The Swedish ports employer announced this week that it was taking the union to court in an effort to force its members to handle the banned cargo. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found stories about the U.S. national women's football team's success in gaining pay equal to that of that country's men's team. In other news about women workers, we followed the work being done by the Midwives Union in Lesotho as it presses for an expansion in its members' scope of practice. And we were able to bring you an interview with a Ukrainian member of the Builders' Union there about her life since the start of the Russian invasion. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page and Newswire this week includes coverage of the health care crisis in Eswatini, where several medical facilities had only a single health care worker well enough to report for work at least one day last week. From the UK, we brought our readers a report from the British Medical Association that details how that country's government failed healthcare workers throughout the pandemic. And we carried stories about the Building Workers International's initial success in pressing the ILO and national governments to declare occupational health and safety a fundamental right. 
already over 100 building workers international affiliates in 50 countries have joined in the campaign our current photo of the week is from sri lanka where last week trade unions called for a national general strike against not only government economic policy but also the banning of trade union activity in large segments of the economy and a shoot-to-kill order aimed at ending weeks of popular protests. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Equality for You and Me, produced by ITUC-AP, the Asia-Pacific section of the International Trade Union Confederation. It's a musical plea for countries to ratify Convention 190 of the International Labor Organization. Convention 190 focuses on eliminating violence and harassment in the world of work. Day by day, women are silenced. Facing fear, intimidation, and violence. Robbing us of freedom and security. Rooted in centuries of
us a seat at the table, give voices to workers, women, and young people. We must have a say in policies affecting our lives. Their design, their enforcement must leave no one behind. And gender-based violence and discrimination ensure social protection, decent job creation, social dialogue, and engagement with unions. Build a nation grounded on inclusion and people's genuine participation. And that's it. Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Polanco. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm Mark Polanco from Radio Labor. It's important to remember our past, but only because it helps us face the present to make the future, and the future's always coming. Here's Benny Esguera and gang with Solidarity Forever, the new millennium version. Uh, no more division, no, we're bringing a new vision. And it's just in time from ashes, we get birth a new tradition. Solidarity forever with a new millennium flavor. Now we're resurrecting it one century later. Keep our feet fixed on the past in order to stay rooted in our minds. Eye on tomorrow so that today we get through this. So that one day we're victorious. So just gather now, come near. Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear. We give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line. Those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious rhymes. Those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost, lost only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Your money's being hoarded and the people are unsupported. Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported. When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it. We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided. They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest. They're thinking that it's clever, but we know we're something better. Solidarity forever. Now jobs are disappearing and all we're ever hearing is pay a lot more, get paid a little less. Work a little harder, then work a little longer, but we're taking it no longer. We're decided we're uniting, cause together we are stronger. The unions got a back, CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact. So we're making a choice and we're making some noise. We're walking with poise and we're raising our voice. We're singing.
Okay, that was Solidarity Forever, the new version. And um, the song that the last few months, last couple years, have hopefully made us much more aware of nurses and their work. So this song, we can get it up, Nurses Lullaby. Songs for Essential Workers. Nurses Lullaby. Well, that's our radio labor segment, and we had three songs there. <clears throat> we had uh, the equality song, demanding, asking for the passage of an equality law, regulation against exploitation gender exploitation of women and young people. 
after that, he had Solidarity Forever, a modern version of the, uh, I want to say Ralph Chaplin or Joe Hill song, labor classic. And then that beautiful one of the Nurse's Lullaby. We'll play some more from that CD called Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers, Songs that Honor Our Essential Workers. This is The Bee and this is Labor and Love. We're going to take our halfway break now. See you in a few. What have we got coming up? We've got tulip workers in Washington. We've got a labor beat about minor league ball players and organizing at Starbucks. We've got a short presentation homage to Karl Marx, whose birthday was May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Luisa Moreno, an organizer in Southern California in the 40s and 50s. Fiorentini from The Wall, reporting from The Wall and from Cuba. And we've got uh, labor history in two minutes. A lot coming up, so stay tuned. Go take your break now and come on back. Thank you. 
Okay, we're back. Um, this is the Labor and Love Show, where we talk about how it is. Labor and Love, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. They don't want you to unite or to organize. They don't want you coming in, speaking collectively. They want you to come into the office by yourself with your hat in your hand. Bust your labor and your benefits and your wages down to the point where you barely get to come back, where you can maintain yourself and come back again to work with your hat in your hand. <clears throat> so it is. So we're going to talk now about <clears throat> leading theorists of resistance to capitalism. A man who looked deep into the darkness at the heart of capitalism and found the reason and found how it works. Why you keep working and they keep getting richer. <laughs> and of course, the man's name is Karl Marx. This is called Political Theory, Karl Marx from the School of Life. Listen up. Okay, Marx will be with us in a minute. Marx was uh, German and uh, spent most of his life in England and spent much of his life writing a huge book called Capital, an analysis of capitalism and how it affected and basically warped our lives. Karl Marx remains deeply important today, not as a man who told us what to replace capitalism with, but as someone who brilliantly pointed out certain of its problems. Now, this is... This is from a pro-capitalist group, but have to get to it later. It's not coming up. The Hidden History of Luisa Moreno, an organizer. Celebration, the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., is highlighting the story of Luisa Moreno. She was a civil rights leader and activist you might not know about, but you should. CBS 17's Alexandra Limon reports on the hidden history of Luisa Moreno. It's a name you probably haven't heard, Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez. She was a labor organizer and a civil rights leader. She fought for Hispanic workers in the United States, beginning in the depths of the Great Depression. But Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez changed her name and called herself Luisa Moreno. 
Even her name became a way to stand with Hispanic labor. In Spanish, Blanca means white, and Moreno, brown. Her story is the focus of a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Mireya Losa is the curator who oversaw its installation. She's just a figure that predates a lot of work that we think is central to labor organizing. She says Luisa Moreno was born into a wealthy family in Guatemala. She worked as a journalist in Mexico, and she wanted to change the world around her. And she decides in the U.S. that she will rub shoulders with working class and working poor people and really fight for their rights. Moreno moved to New York City where she worked as a seamstress, but the low wages and poor working conditions propelled her to help organize several strikes, and that set her life on a path dedicated to fighting for fair labor practices. And she decides to organize tobacco workers in Florida, pecan shellers in Texas, and cannery workers in California. Moreno became one of the most prominent labor activists of her time after signing on with the American Federation of Labor, in part because of her powerful writings. She is a poet and an intellectual, and she is a clever writer and thinker. Moreno was also key in creating the Spanish-speaking People's Congress, a California-based coalition of Latinos. It was used to lobby Congress for protections for immigrants, like housing and education reforms in the late 1930s and 1940s. But in 1950, the government issued a deportation order for Moreno. They cited her association with the Communist Party as a risk to national security. And she leaves the U.S. Um, because uh, they threatened her with deportation because of a lot of her union organizing and her work. Moreno returned to Mexico, and she lived in communist Cuba. Ultimately, she died in her native Guatemala. I just think her story is really incredible for this period, and I think she's a really incredible Latina. Luisa Moreno helped pave the way for future activists like Cesar Chavez to declare, yes, we can. Si se puede. In Washington, Alexandra Limon, CBS 17 News. And be sure to join CBS 17's Felicia. Okay, that was the story of Luisa Moreno, and Luisa Moreno is featured uh, in our Labor Cards con collection. Labor Card number 15, Luisa Moreno. California has become prosperous with the toil and sweat of Mexican immigration. Moreno came to New York from Guatemala in 1928 and works, worked as a seamstress in Harlem. She was radicalized during a 1930 demonstration where she saw police beating protesters. The demonstration was a protest against the way that uh, Mexicans were featured in a Western film, highly stereotypic and negative depictions. And... Uh, Police came by and beat people right in front of her. She had a guy, she was holding a man's head and looking into his eyes after the police had beaten him. 
Wisa worked with Latina and African-American cigar rollers in Florida and pecan workers in Texas. She settled in California to organize cannery workers, became a leading voice opposing the beating of young Mexicans by servicemen in the so-called zoot suit riots. That's what you do for beating up Chicanos. He was departed to Mexico in 1950 at the height of the Red Scare. Luisa Moreno. Well, it looks like our Karl Marx is not coming up. So let's see about Trouble in the Tulips. This is on the labor notes. Organized farm workers win basic demands in a quick strike. Mount Vernon, Washington, March 28th. Tulips and daffodils symbolize the arrival of spring. But the fields are bitterly cold when workers' labors begin. Snow still covers the ground when workers go into the tulip rows, plant bulbs in northwest Washington state near the Canadian border. Once harvesting starts, so do other problems. When a worker cuts a daffodil, for instance, he or she has to avoid the liquid that oozes from the, sun, the stem, source of painful skin rashes. Fields of flowers are so beautiful they can take your breath away Conditions under which they're cultivated and harvest can be just as bad as they are for any other crop. Phillips have always been a hard job, but it's a job during a time of year when work is hard to find, says farmer Tomas Ramon. This year we just stopped enduring the problems. We decided things had to change. March 21st, their dissatisfaction reached ahead. Three crews of pickers at Washington Bulb accused the company of shorting the bonuses paid on top of their hourly wage. Washington's minimum of 1469. Workers get that extra pay if they exceed a target quota set by the company for picking We've had problems for a long time, explains Ramon, who has cut tulips for Washington Bulb for seven years. And the company has always invented reasons not to talk to us. Workers stopped work that Monday and waited from 8 in the morning to see how the owners would respond. The general supervisor was sick, they were told. Someone from the company would talk to them, but only as individuals. You see this over and over. They don't want to talk to collective group, but the spokesperson. They want to talk to individuals. So they have everything on their side, and you are the only one against them. Your hat in your hand, as I say. <clears throat> Another thing is that these workers, a lot of them work 
in work for the state's largest berry grower, Kuma Farms, later in the season, when they begin as members of Familias Unidas para por la Justicia, an independent union. They've won, already won there in 2013 a contract after four years. Keep our eye on that one. That's on labor notes. See what do we got? We got someone playing here. One dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff told them all the same sell all of your jewelry and give it to the poor so they laid jesus christ in his grave when jesus come to town the working folks around believed what he did say the bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now the working people followed him around, sang and shouted gay. But the cops and soldiers nailed him in the air, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Well, the people held their breath when they heard about his death. Everybody wondered why. It was the landlord and the soldiers that he hired to nail Jesus Christ in the sky. This song was made in New York City of rich mans and preachers and slaves. If Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave. Yes, Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand, his followers true and brave. One dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave. Okay, that was uh, Woody Guthrie singing uh, about another re revolutionary. I'm Eric. You might know me from YouTube where I went from zero to... And uh, Jesus Christ. Political theory, Karl Marx. Most people agree that we need to improve our economic system somehow, yet we're also often keen to dismiss the ideas of capitalism's most famous and ambitious critic, Karl Marx. This isn't very surprising. In practice, his political and economic ideas have been used to design disastrously planned economies and nasty dictatorships. Nevertheless, we shouldn't reject Marx too quickly. We ought to see him as a guide whose diagnosis of capitalism's ills helps us to navigate towards a more promising future. Capitalism is going to have to be reformed, and Marx's analyses are going to be part of any answer.
Marx was born in 1818 in Trier in Germany. Soon he became involved with the Communist Party, a tiny group of intellectuals advocating for the overthrow of the class system and the abolition of private property. He worked as a journalist and had to flee Germany, eventually settling in London. Marx wrote an enormous number of books and articles, sometimes with his friend Friedrich Engels. Mostly, Marx wrote about capitalism, the type of economy that dominates the Western world. It was, in his day, still getting going, and Marx was one of its most intelligent and perceptive critics. These were some of the problems he identified with it. Modern work is alienated. One of Marx's greatest insights is that work can be one of the sources of our greatest joys. But, in order to be fulfilled at work, Marx wrote that workers need to see themselves in the objects they have created. Think of the person who built this chair. It's straightforward, strong, honest and elegant. It's an example of how, at its best, labour offers us a chance to externalise what's good inside us. But this is increasingly rare in the modern world. Part of the problem is that modern work is incredibly specialised. Specialised jobs make the modern economy highly efficient, but they also mean that it's seldom possible for any one worker to derive a sense of the genuine contribution they might be making to the real needs of humanity. Marx argued that modern work leads to alienation, Entfremdung. In other words, a feeling of disconnection between what you do all day and who you feel you really are and what you think you'd ideally be able to contribute to existence. Modern work is insecure. Capitalism makes the human being utterly expendable, just one factor among others in the forces of production and one that can ruthlessly be let go the minute that costs rise or savings can be made through technology. And yet, as Marx knew deep inside each of us, we don't want to be arbitrarily let go. We're terrified of being abandoned. Communism isn't just an economic theory. Understood emotionally, it expresses a deep-seated longing that we always have a place in the world's heart, that we will not be cast out. Workers get paid little, while capitalists get rich. This is perhaps the most obvious qualm that Marx had with capitalism. In particular, he believed that capitalists shrink the wages of the labourers as much as possible in order to skim off a wide profit margin. He called this primitive accumulation, ursprüngliche Akkumulation. Whereas capitalists see profit as a reward for ingenuity and technological talent, Marx was far more damning. Profit is simply theft, and what you're stealing is the talent and hard work of your workforce. However much one dresses up the fundamentals, Marx insists that at its crudest, capitalism means paying a worker one price for doing something and then selling it to somebody else at a much higher price. Profit is the fancy term for exploitation. Capitalism is very unstable. Marx proposed that capitalist systems are characterised by a series of crises. Every crisis is dressed up by capitalists as being somehow freakish and rare and soon to be the last one. Far from it, argued Marx. Crises are endemic to capitalism, and they're caused by something rather odd. The fact that we're able to produce too much, far more than anyone needs to consume. Capitalist crises are crises of abundance, rather than, as in the past, crises of shortage. Our factories and systems are so efficient, we could give everyone on this planet a car, a house, access to a decent school and a hospital. And that's what so enraged Marx, but also made him so hopeful too. Few of us actually need to work because the modern economy is so productive. 
But rather than seeing this need not to work as the freedom it is, we complain about it masochistically and describe it by a pejorative word, unemployment. We should call it freedom. There's so much unemployment for a good and deeply admirable reason, because we're so good at making things efficiently. We're not all needed at the coalface. But in that case, we should, thought Marx, make leisure admirable. We should redistribute the wealth of the massive corporations that make so much surplus money and give it to everyone. This is, in its own way, as beautiful a dream as Jesus' promise of heaven, but a good deal more realistic sounding. Capitalism is bad for capitalists. Marx didn't think that capitalists were evil. For example, he was acutely aware of the sorrows and secret agonies that lay behind bourgeois marriage. Marx argued that marriage was actually an extension of business and that the bourgeois family was fraught with tension, oppression and resentment, with people staying together not for love but for financial reasons. Marx believed that the capitalist system forces everyone to put economic interests at the heart of their lives so that they can no longer know deep, honest relationships. He called this psychological tendency commodity fetishism, Waren fetishismus, because it makes us value things that have no objective value. He wanted people to be freed from financial constraint so that they could, at last, start to make sensible, healthy choices in their relationships. The 20th century feminist answer to the oppression of women has been to argue that women should simply be able to go out to work. But Marx's answer was more subtle. This feminist insistence merely perpetuates human slavery. The point isn't that women should imitate the sufferings of their male colleagues. It's that men and women should have the permanent option to enjoy leisure. Why don't we all think a bit more like Marx? An important aspect of Marx's work is that he proposes that there's an insidious, subtle way in which the economic system colours the sort of ideas that we end up having. The economy generates what Marx termed an ideology. A capitalist society is one where most people, rich and poor, believe all sorts of things that are really just value judgments that relate back to the economic system. For example, that a person who doesn't work is worthless, that leisure beyond a few weeks a year is sinful, that more belongings will make us happier, and that worthwhile things and people will invariably make money. In short, one of the biggest evils of capitalism is not that there are corrupt people at the top, this is true in any human hierarchy, but that capitalist ideas teach all of us to be anxious, competitive, conformist and politically complacent. Marx didn't only outline what was wrong with capitalism, we also get glimpses of what Marx wanted the ideal utopian future to be like. In his Communist Manifesto, he describes a world without private property or inherited wealth, with a steeply graduated income tax, centralised control of the banking, communication and transport industries, and free public education. Marx also expected that communist society would allow people to develop lots of different sides of their natures. In communist society, it's possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticise after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, herdsman or critic. After Marx moved to London, he was supported by his friend and intellectual partner Friedrich Engels, a wealthy man whose father owned a cotton plant in Manchester. Engels covered Marx's debts and made sure his works were published. Capitalism paid for communism. The two men even wrote each other adoring poetry. Marx was not a well-regarded or popular intellectual in his day. Respectable, conventional people of Marx's day would have laughed at the idea that his ideas could remake the world. Yet, just a few decades later, they did. 
his writings became the keystone for some of the most important ideological movements of the 20th century. But Marx was like a brilliant doctor in the early days of medicine. He could recognize the nature of the disease, although he had no idea how to go about curing it. At this point in history, we should all be Marxists, in the sense of agreeing with his diagnosis of our troubles. But we need to go out and find the cures that really will work. As Marx himself declared, and we deeply agree, Philosophers until now have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. That was uh, from School of Life, and it's a pretty even-handed uh, analysis of Marx and his work. They do make the point say that capitalism paid for communism, which is kind of a backhanded slap, right? What else was going to pay for it? Why do you have to pay for it in the first place? Anyway, that's it. Marx was, as we say, May 5th was his birthday, certainly one of the most influential philosophers, economists, rebels of all time. And it is time to reevaluate his work. There was one, um, they talked there for a minute about capitalist accumulation. And this is a theory where Marx looked into the very heart of capitalism and saw the basic theft that went on. Theory of surplus value. Let's say you you work in a factory and you make chairs. Or you work at a service agency or you work in a bank or you so you're paid a certain wage for your work. Boss, the owner, managers pay you a certain wage, say ten dollars an hour. That $10 an hour pays for your labor, but in order for you to make money for your boss, you have to produce more than $10. Let's say the work you do has a worth of $15 an hour for the owners. That $5 that is not paid to you is taken called the surplus, and it's taken by the owners or by your employer. And that's where you lose money. That's where the theft occurs. You work and produce $15, but you're only paid for 10 of it. That's how people like Elon Musk and other super rich people and all rich people make their money off your labor. As Bill Haywood said, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. That someone is you and me, the working people of this world. If you listen to an economist like uh, 
remember his name. Richard Wolf. You can hear him on Fridays on KPFA. Richard Wolf talks about how work could be reorganized so that people had an interest in the profits. In a smaller work site, everybody would sit around and decide together how to distribute that profit, where it would go. Well, I'll bet it wouldn't go into moving to another country. I'll bet it wouldn't go into the pockets of one rich person. It would be shared. Yeah, for more of that talk. Economists like Richard Wolf. So there, there's Karl Marx. And uh, hopefully you'll take a little more time to look and see what communism and Marxism really are. The whole system, the whole idea is fraught with care for the individual human against alienation and the idea of organizing and working together to make a better world. That's what Marxism is about. All right. Play some music. Just for a break. We started there with Nina Simone. And um, I want to play something that my mother would have liked because this is Mother's Month. Let's see if we've got something. She enjoyed. My mother was a big influence on me and my late brother. Taught us what picket signs, why we should never cross a picket line. And she taught me not to be a racist. I had a Japanese American teacher in the third grade. Um, she, she took action. There were people standing around. This was right after World War II, and Sunset had one of the highest rates of casualties in World War II in the Pacific Theater. So she had every reason, you know, not to embrace this young woman, this young Japanese-American woman. Helen Sashi Ueda was my teacher. And other mothers were standing around together. Wondering and upset that... Uh, Our kids were going to have a Japanese-American teacher, right? My mother walked up to her and said, Welcome, this is my son, Billy. That's me. 
and uh, it kind of broke the spell, I remember. Um, he, she, she made it easier to do. A lot of people, a lot of people, of course, decided to move their kids, but she didn't. Here's one that she loved. this song, Irene, from a friend of ours. His name was Hughie Ledbetter. He called himself Leadbelly, king of the 12-string guitar. Some people thought he was the greatest folk singer that ever lived in America. We knew him best as a rememberer of folk songs, and he taught us dozens of them, especially Irene. This was his theme song, and he sang it for over 30 years before he died. Well, he died before Irene got to be known to so many millions of Americans. Hughie had a hard and wonderful life. It's over now but his songs are still very much alive. Good night, Irene, good night, Irene, I'll see you in my dreams. Last Saturday night I got married, me and my wife settled down. Now me and my wife are partying, I'm gonna take another stroll Irene, good night. That one was for you, Mom. And uh, here's Francesca Fiorentini talking to us from the wall. Why walls won't secure. 
secure the U.S. and Mexican border. We're getting the rolling ball again. Look, there's already a wall and fences and concrete barricades and gunboats and drones and SUVs. The border is nearly 2,000 miles long. It includes uninhabited desert, major cities, and the Rio Grande River. We always hear about border security, and the U.S. spends billions every year on our so-called protection. But what's really going on here? Many things cross the border, from monarch butterflies to heroin, to people looking for a better life. 93% of the cocaine consumed in the U.S. comes in through this border, having made its way from South America. That, along with marijuana and methamphetamines, are smuggled through tunnels, on lightweight planes, in car tires, even shot over the border in t-shirt cannons. When the U.S. is the largest market in the world for illegal drugs, there's always a way in. Then there are guns, which flow the other way. Every year, an average of 253,000 firearms bought in the U.S. cross into Mexico. And the insane amount of gun dealers on the U.S. side make that really easy. There's three per mile. There are dozens of official entry points along the border. Lines and increased security mean it can take hours to get from Juarez to El Paso, a distance of less than a mile. Though many people cross every day for work, school, or vacation, we mostly hear about illegal crossings. It's hard to be exact about how many cross. Most of what we know is based on how many people the Border Patrol apprehends. And that number has actually been decreasing. But crossing the border illegally means a lot more than just waiting. It means walking for days on end under the sun over some rugged terrain. It means exhaustion and dehydration. Some migrants hire what are called coyotes to help them across the border, but those coyotes sometimes have ties to the drug trade, and rape and abuse are common. In the last decade, thousands have been found dead while attempting to cross the border. If they do make it across, they face an entire apparatus of Customs and Border Patrol, the largest federal enforcement agency in the nation. It is equipped with guns, drones, towers, ground sensors, helicopters, gunboats, and dogs to police the border in what some consider militarization rather than security. Look, it's a border surveillance blimp. The budget for this increased by 75% in the last decade to $13.5 billion a year. Together with what the U.S. spends on ICE, that's more money than the DEA, the FBI, and the Secret Service combined. Between 2004 and 2015, the number of border agents more than doubled. The CBP operates in what the U.S. considers border territory, which is anything 100 miles from the border itself. Here, anyone can be stopped on reasonably suspicious grounds, even if they're a citizen. It's all part of a strategy to stop border crossing through deterrence. The idea that the more people fear crossing, the less likely they are to do it. That might work if you don't mind what it implies. More danger, more deaths, and a ripe market for human smuggling. But is it actually keeping America safer? Despite Trump and other politicians' claims, ISIS isn't coming across the southern border. There has yet to be a single apprehension of someone with links to the Islamic State. The current wall covers just 653 miles of the border and has already cost the U.S. $7 billion, $5 million per mile in some areas. Experts estimate that to cover the entire border with a wall would cost $25 billion, and that's not even including labor. 
There are logistical hurdles too. Because of treaties the U.S. has signed with Mexico, it can't build on the Rio Grande floodplains. And much of the border in Texas is privately owned, and not everyone wants a giant wall in their backyard. So, even with all the money in the world and our very own Great Wall of America, can we ever stop movement across the border by force? And will it make us safer? Okay, that's um, AJ Plus's work on uh, the border. And the rather silly, very expensive fascination that some people have with people coming across the border. We might add that everybody's, every white person came across the border. Everybody who's here, many Africans were brought here by force. Some people here already, and Americans came. Who's the illegal alien? A famous work by Wanda Lopez. Anyway, I want to play this one about Cuba, where she goes to Cuba and what she has to say about Cuban society. And we're getting the whirling ball again. Hey guys, I have been a little MIA because I've been here. In Cuba. No, not for work, on a vacation an educational vacation. I planned it before Obama said it was cool, but even though it's difficult to bring a camera crew in here because they're very wary about journalists, it's amazing how many stories there are to tell. Just in Havana alone, in every corner, in every home you see, every person you talk to, there is a world. From the colonial history of Cuba, which is incredibly brutal, to the inequality of the Batista regime, to the incredible feat that was the communist revolution, to now, when things are changing slowly. Cuba is a country that's stuck in time in a lot of ways, thanks to the U.S. economic embargo. But also, it feels like a parallel world where problems the rest of the world has, Cuba has the complete opposite. Healthcare, for example, is free, but doctors have a hard time making ends meet. Crazy. What surprised me was that people are pretty open about their critiques of the government. They're thankful for what the revolution and the Castro regime has brought them, and yet they're really now ready for change. For example, Wi-Fi would be nice. Whatever happens politically between the U.S. and Cuba, one thing is for sure. The Cuban people are incredibly resilient and well-educated and great dancers. Cuban slang for the fluttering sound a hummingbird makes. And the name of a Cuban Twitter-like social media platform that was exposed earlier this year as being a project sponsored by none other than the United States of America. <gasps> okay, that was Fiorentini uh, talking to us from Cuba. And I guess we could find something at any rate, 
the Labor and Love Show. It's getting time to go. Scott Walker's in the house. Or flat black plastic. Hope you stay tuned after this show and listen to him and his work. And um, it is about time for us to get out of here. We're going to play our our version, the one we opened up with, Los Peludos. And a homage to Antonio Armides. Trajo gachupines con todo y tales, trajo a Jesucristo y al Richard Nixon, trajo la viruela y hasta la sífilis, llora en vez de habla español, también trajo un vato llamado Cortés, que con la malinche metieron las tres, y de la conquista y la destrucción nacieron mestizos, hijos del soltero este sol. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time.
Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John so Clooney must track down the, the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government and its personal, yeah. as the Enigma brokers have already town. cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex, the Enigma brokers, is the first creator, book of the, the John Clooney thrillers. Hit it you don't have to read Amazon. the whole thing. I just think it's all the words Billy are really Bob, cool and I don't... You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever you know want to be like, like in front of an audience, like, like other than like squirrels, dogs, like, and dead passing? Well, shit. From time to time, I've never okay. thought of you. You, you know, you go to air? joke workshop, yeah, there's more than two out. peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even going to be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude. Before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radio. You know, like Tull. His favorite band is Jethro Tull. I was just leaving the theater. Nineteen sixty-nine gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, right. And I started to do some thinking. Around, on the freeway, and having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am a total fan of Lori Stanley's voice is absolutely right. I am Teddy Berrios, an adolescent, and I will cut the boy. Nice, the pants not here. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here from your, uh, your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Has John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide 
Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, till Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent. From his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires Actually, to really a trip nice. up the really Amazon well. in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it. Hey, me and Mir Stolowitz here. We are listening to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon with Bill Morgan. Oh, yeah. It's a really Friday excellent show. One of my favorites here on the station. And it's all about service. Might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we gotta serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com.
or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutinyradio.fm. Why not make a donation? Mutinyradio.fm. Streaming live the station. Mutinyradio.fm. District of the Mission. Mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio. The world's deadliest assassins are already dead. A shadowy group of killers for hire is eliminating world leaders, crime lords, and CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a dangerous plan to capture a shadow killer alive. Contract a hit on himself. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it.